Video Vortex would like to acknowledge that we're recording on the lands of the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and we'd like to acknowledge and remind people that sovereignty was never ceded. What is it that we're watching? Distinguished guests, welcome to Video Vortex. Yes, it's just down there, you can't miss it. Welcome to Video Vortex, Australia's latest podcast about topics that you might be interested in relating to film and whatever we happen to ramble on about. No, like no, let's make it more exciting. Let's make it more engaging. People want to listen to it. It's not might want to be listening. This is <laughs> Australia's only podcast. And we are now Australia's only podcast. Reporting from the bunkers of lockdown. <laughs> Mokum, if you got them, folk. We're a little bit of a train wreck today, but then so is all of Australia. So welcome aboard. Absolutely. <laughs> I would like to introduce you to the not at all confusing trio of people that is Stephanie. Hi. Steph. Yeah, please, Steph. <laughs> Myself, Ben, and the other Ben. Uh, cool. Can we can we make that? <laughs> Uh, at all uh, decipherable for listeners, please. <laughs> I refuse. You guys, you, you signed up. You knew what you were getting into. Well, there's a couple of options here. We can give you identifying monikers. We could be B and V, but they also sound kind of the same. So they sound that... very similar. Well, op- one option is Bucky or Buckingham or Volchek. I don't know. Bucks, thanks. Bucks. Chocks. You want... Chocks and Bucks. What? I mean, so for those who have already switched off, yeah. my name is Ben Buckingham. <laughs> I am one of the three hosts. We have Steph Fellows on the other side. Want to say hello again, Steph? Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Ben Bolchok, who we might one day figure out how to make it less confusing that we have two Bens on the same podcast. Yes. Hello. <laughs> we are we... relevant. <laughs> The superfluous Benjamin. <laughs> the superfluous Benjamin. Yeah, there you go. No, you're you're an essential Ben. There's, there can be more than one Ben in the world. Oh yeah, I'm an essential Ben. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> I wear that on a t-shirt for the rest of my life. Essential Ben. I could easily like that's like a tattoo worthy. That is. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you know, you speaking as someone with multiple tattoos, <laughs> does that make it more or less of a compliment? Uh, well, I have lots of dumb tattoo ideas that I might one day get. Can confirm. (laughs) (laughs) Steph, would you like to say a few things about yourself and let the people know who you are? Uh, sure. Well, I'm Steph. I met these two years ago now. The first voice you heard, the first Ben that spoke, was I met at university about over 10 years ago now. Soon became my housemate and we bonded over all things film and he tortured me for many of those years. Volchek, I think I met you probably about six or seven years ago, I would guess. I studied film, did absolutely Mm. nothing for my career, of course, and I still love film. So that's why we're here. That's all I'm going to say. So you're going to say, cool. Actually, listening to you just now, an accent has definitely decreased significantly since I first met you, but I think we oh, should just yeah. leave it as a, as, a, as a random mystery because sure. Steph might have a bit of an accent, but she's not actually where you think she's from, and it is one of the great mysteries of the podcast we may <laughs> never reveal. 
Oh, I like that. Let's do that. Cool. Ben, shocks. Your turn. Shocks. Uh, <laughs> I um, I'm pretty sure I met both of you in uni as well nine years ago now. Wow. It was, yeah. it was a while ago. I don't think it was, it was nine, eight or that. nine years ago. I uh, was creeping on Ben and reading his Twitter on his phone over his shoulder and saw him talking to somebody who I knew in real life and was like, hey, you know that person. And on it went. Yeah, what a it creep. was just that kind of moment of like, oh, well, well we, uh, we've been sitting next to each other in class for, for weeks now. And then we find out that there's actually a whole bunch of crossover and people that we know in the Melbourne film community. Yeah, I... I'm a comedian, writer, performer kind of person with a more than passing interest in film. I guess I've been into film for many, many, many years, devoting probably more time than necessary <laughs> into watching uh, and devouring films with the hopes of one day perhaps making them. And that's probably probably enough of an introduction to me as well. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys are terrible at making yourselves sound interesting. I know, we really are. <laughs> All right, let's our first time. Let's be kind. So, so okay, so uh, I'll do uh, a little bit of me, and then I'll tell you some people some interesting facts about you too. <laughs> okay, so my name is Ben Buckingham, uh, Bucks, as opposed to Chocks. Um, I have been obsessed with films since I was very, very, very tiny. Uh, I lived in the video store as a kid. I studied film at university. I have made independent films with friends. I work in television post-production. I basically just don't do anything but film. <laughs> I like yes, you're the most legitimate parts. one out of all of us here, I have to say, <laughs> when you say it that way. No, 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 I just, uh, you could look at it the flip side in that I've never done anything consistently enough. <laughs> Other than film, that's my consistency. <laughs> one interesting fact about Ben and one interesting fact about Steph. When I first met Steph, she mostly loved films that hurt my soul. <laughs> Great. So one random What an film. interesting fact! <laughs> <laughs> there was one random film that I was like, hang on, wait, what? Uh, she had an addiction to a film called Welcome to the Dollhouse. Oh, yeah. As you get to know, Steph, you still to this day, I'm like, what? <laughs> because Welcome to the Dollhouse is the same director as Happiness and numerous demented, intense, horrific films. And I had actually never seen Welcome to the Dollhouse at the time, and Steph showed it to me, and she, yes, had watched it hundreds of times and could yeah. quote it, and it was a very, very strange thing, but it gave me hope for dragging her away <laughs> from the dark side of normal cinema. <laughs> Oh, you have anything dear. to say for yourself, Steph? <laughs> nope. Nope. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll address it when we Maybe get on to our next bit. bit. Yeah. And a very interesting fact about Ben that he didn't mention was that he wasn't actually majoring in cinema when, he, when we met and studying. He was studying linguistics. So he mm. has an even possibly more useless degree <laughs> than Steph and I. <laughs> well, depending on your depending on your perspective, I mean, I am currently working uh, as a research assistant in Melbourne Uni's linguistics faculty, and some of the work we do has very definite, practical, physical, real life applications. So maybe not so useless after all. You know, things like documenting, preserving uh, languages, um, making language resources for communities to help with language preservation and development things like what that what he's saying ben is burn i use my degree and i get paid <laughs> for it that's I, right I retract <laughs> <my name. laughs> 
but I, I, I work uh, yeah. in I work in the industry that I studied for, and my degree has nothing to do with anything I work in. So yeah, I'm oof, I'm I just dunked myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're an odd mix, this trio, and that's part of the reason why I wanted us to do this because we do have quite uh, different backgrounds and perspectives, and something like a linguistics degree is absolutely like matches cinema perfectly because cinema is a language. And that is a big part of what we're going to be talking about over however many more episodes we manage yeah, to podcast do. Podcast episode 3,455, Cinema as Language. Yeah, we're going to keep you hanging on Tenter Talks till we get to Cinema as Language. It's going to be like, just you wait. It'll be like, is it going to be next week? Is it going to be next week? You're going to run to the internet every week and wonder, are they going to do Cinema as Language this week? I just can't wait. And we're not going to tell you when we're going to drop that one. Yeah, even some, like, just thinking back to the past, like, five different sentences that we've said, there's so many topics to, to talk about. Things like the concept of what is normal cinema, what is the cinema industry. We can, we can spend hours just analyzing, deconstructing all of the sentences that we've just spoken and finding more topics to delve into. So <laughs> watch out for that. And that's what we intend to do. When I'm talking to people about films, I don't tend to just talk about like a plot or what is in a film it tends to be you know you have these branching conversations where you're like okay well oh did you know this about that and suddenly you're talking about classical hollywood traditions and the effect of you know second world war on european cinema and globalization of uh blah uh, blah etc etc and that's kind of where we wanted to bring this podcast to was to be each week we'll try and uh, we'll pick like a topic so say cinema language or you know uh maybe subgenres like a revisionist westerns and we'll talk about the ideas relating to them the historical context personal experiences and interests and just let the conversation weave and wave wherever it wants to we're a bit rough and tumble we're kicking this off as a let's just do it we will work on getting our sound even better over time but we really just wanted to do something to put our interests together we've, we've just said we've all got a lot of experience you know steph's worked in cinemas with me for a number of years ben's done his comedy shows and writing on cinema he once gave m night Shyamalan a packet of twisties <laughs> uh, that's true Jeez. And, you know, I, I've worked as a festival programmer and running film nights in back rooms of bars and working in cinemas and various levels. And so it's just kind of thing where it's like we, people often tell, like all of us, that we have interesting experiences and perspectives. And we kind of want to be like, OK, you know, it's cool. Let's try and see, record something and see what happens. And we'll see if we can pass on some of our knowledge and experience and be a university in your pockets, not so much a, a movie of the week kind of show. I was going to say, it's, it's sort of what you were touching on. I think all of us are interested in the idea of cinema not just being, you know, something you go watch and, and forget about. These are obviously a products of a particular societies. These are people who are interacting with these, uh, these products of culture who then also have wider lives beyond that. And I think what this podcast isn't is just a, a film analysis podcast or a film discussion podcast or a, you know, a film listing podcast, recommendations, things like that, which you'll get, but it's, <laughs> it'll be situated within a wider context of what's going on in the world now, what was going in the world at a particular time certain theories broader cultural theories philosophical theories not just relating to like film theories and things like that so i, yes, I think it'll be much more haphazard 
-hmm. Yeah. Much much more haphazard, but hopefully with some good analysis that you might not have considered before, or hopefully will point you into the direction of something that you might want to look into more on your own time. We're just here to give you ideas, really. For myself, I'm definitely, I I dabbled in uh, sociology when I was at university, and and my uh, honours thesis ended up taking me into anthropology and all sorts of strange areas. To me, it's I, I I don't understand people who are film obsessed and not interested in society or politics or culture because film is absolutely about society and culture and politics. It is it it is like a mirror to our societies. Sometimes it deceives and sometimes it reveals, but it still reflects who and what we are and yeah intentionally or unintentionally yeah and that's where where my passion comes from it's always been that first and foremost so there's a lot of films that i love because of that because i feel like they say something about who we are and reveal aspects of ourselves that we don't often deal with and that often leads me to having some of my friends think that i'm trolling them because of a passion for films they think are truly god awful (laughs) but it also often leads me to just despising a lot of cinema that just is steeped in quite toxic ideology and i yeah i'm just gonna most people who know me know that i'm pretty blatant about saying some things crap or toxic or whatever but i will um do my best to not let this podcast turn into ben rants part 17 (laughs) well it would be ben and ben rant if that happens but ben um, and ben and 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 one other that's not a ben um that's what the t-shirts will say um and I no, think that better than that, Steph. You're not uh-huh. just not a Ben. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, and I think that actually what you're saying on kind of segues quite nicely into what we've loosely termed as our topic for this uh, this our inaugural episode. Hopefully, give you a little bit of an idea of kind of some of our interest points or things that we think are representative of ourselves. So we decided that we would discuss two films each, quite briefly, I suppose. Um, one focusing on our what we've very loosely called our cinematic origin um, or a film that perhaps was very important to us when we were first discovering our love of films um, and the second one being something that's a bit more contemporary or something that we've perhaps re-watched recently that has had new impact or we found has new levels for, for us. Um, yeah, you kind of keyed me up a little bit with Welcome to the Dollhouse, which... Um, <laughs> which is a it, I had completely forgotten about that and then as soon as he said I went oh yeah yeah I watched that a lot as a 17 18 year old very specific point in my history my life history and actually to be honest when uh, when I was thinking about this kind of topic I really struggled with my cinematic origin film nod because my relationship with film and my history It's very haphazard. (laughs) There are certainly quite a few large gaps in my knowledge and experiences. Noticeable absence, for example, of a classic that I just haven't seen uh, would be Wizard of Oz, which is one of those ones that a lot of people are there like standard. Oh yeah, I watched that when I was 10 with my parents. Or Nope, haven't seen it. And honestly, I don't really care to. I know the tropes that come out of it, so I don't really bother with the original. Uh, please don't send me hate mail. <laughs> we just lost half our audience. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sure it's wonderful. I just, I don't feel a need or an urge to visit it. Um, you just blew through like a cyclone and took <laughs> us away. 
Oh, shush. Um, so, yeah, my history is a lot more eclectic, a lot more random. Um, and so the only thing that I could really think of to kick us off with was probably the first film that I remember seeing that was non-Disney. Because when you're little and you live in a foreign country where English is not the first language, Disney is about the safest and only thing you can really watch, um, <laughs> apart from what's in your parents' like movie collection. And so when I was about, I want to say five, Maybe I was six, but in that age, my my first film was Robin Hood Men in Tights, the uh, Mel Brooks classic. And I don't know what that says about me, because obviously as a five or a six year old, there's about 70% of the film that goes way above my head. Um, and it's the kind of film that I would quote and reference, which I'm sure concerned the hell out of my parents growing up. Um, and it wasn't until I was re-watching it when I was like, 15 or so because I hadn't watched it for a very long time I was like oh okay I understand that joke now that's a circumcision <laughs> joke I see all right <laughs> I see where we are now so that, that uh, is probably the 70 percent of that film that you didn't understand was I'm just using it as I think an 70 percent of that film is is circumcision jokes yeah tight, tight. exactly tight tights um I mean yeah I just leave it at that. That's where I'm starting with. On to the next. Absolute classic for Mel Brooks. It, it really, you know, doesn't get talked about it enough. Uh, it, it, it might not be the uh, cultural flashpoint that Blazing Saddles was or the artistic wonder that is Young Frankenstein, but uh, yeah. cannot underrate <laughs> Men in Tights. It's pretty great. Oh. <laughs> Ariel's, uh, you know... Um, can't remember anybody else who's in it now. But yes, absolutely. So many people. Has anyone actually seen the the Kevin Costner Robin Hood that that was meant to be a takeoff of? Yes, many, only a few years ago, actually. Uh-huh. That only a, a few years ago. Was interesting. That, that was a video store staple when I was a kid. What's that heat about uh, that? But I haven't seen yeah, it in I've never seen it. Um, but I still love Men in Tights. I don't know what that says about me. I think that's the, that's a There's nothing te- wrong with it. Testament. Yeah, it's a testament to better ties that you don't need it doesn't need the context of what it's ripping off. It is legitimately just its own pile of ridiculous and it's definitely very absurdist and very sociological, very Mel Brooks is a, definitely a, a comedic a sociologist taking apart society with each of his films. I think when he leans into that is when he makes his better films, but I will stand here and defend Dracula dead and loving it till the day I die. <laughs> it is trash. It has the best vampire staking scene ever, and Leslie Nielsen is a god, so leave me alone. <laughs> I'll just say, Ben, I think it's very funny, uh, sorry, Bucky, that uh, of the people that Bucks. you're trying to remember being, sorry, Bucks, uh, <laughs> the people that you're trying to remember being men in tights, you don't recall that Sir Patrick Stewart plays the king. Um, I had not that, yes. And uh, <laughs> Chappelle, uh, Dave Chappelle as well as being the... Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah, an actually, interesting list. It's quite... It's, it's one of those funny films that... Um, not that the leads in it were big stars, but they their uh, glorious moment on the mount was behind them, whereas much of that, the, mm. the secondary uh, cast have gone on yes. to much bigger and yeah. greater fame since. Is I, I do love those kind of films uh, when you come across them because it, it, it 
it is quite a, a, a like seeing the world from a different perspective because we do get you know so absorbed with celebrity personalities to see them out of the context that we have them now is is, is quite a joy. I'm also just looking at the list and there's a, one of the his his uh, character it just says royal announcer but his name is Clement von Frankenstein which is uh, <laughs> which is very interesting I think anyway intertextuality. Yeah. I know. It's uh, Frankenstein, sorry. I yeah, I know. That, this. That's just correct. <laughs> Funny how, how much of a mainstream comedy name Mel Brooks has become, despite being such a, just like a, just a complete wacko. Yeah. In, in everything he does, just all of the meta stuff that he does. You yeah, know, in, I guess like... in, in Blazing Saddles, ripping up the studio and, and in Men in Tights, the, like the bit where the camera goes through the window or, yes. um, you know, the, the villagers are like, you come here and you destroy our village. Why why can't you just go somewhere else? Every time <laughs> every time they play the credits, they blow up our village. They set fire to our yes. village. Something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, 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 he's yeah. like a little bit of a less, um, in a weird way, a less flamboyant Weird Al. Yeah. They definitely come that same sort of school Very of parody. Much. Yeah, and that, yeah. that absurdism. Spaceballs, when you talk about the better aspect, Spaceballs has proven itself to be still culturally relevant with how it deals with uh, marketing and monetization of a product. Absolutely. Disney has uh, dragged that one back up in intense ways. So, yeah, he, Mel Books, if you're, if you're out there listening, go and revisit him. He's worth, mm -hmm. it, worth it every time. Blazing Saddles is still... Actually, in some ways, Blazing Saddles feels more edgy and confrontational now mm. with a lot oh, of the, yeah. the dialogue we're having in culture about uh, racism and such, that, that that film still hits its mark over and over again. It says a lot about how much we've gone backwards, possibly. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking about it now, and the, the thing that puts Mel Brooks above a lot of comedy writers is just the... The gag rate. Oh yes, of he's his relentless. Films is just relentless, and I think, kind of putting pieces together, the fact that he came from a TV writing background, that that was where he got his start, you know, with Carl Reiner and and people like that, where you had to be a gag a gag a second, otherwise people would lose interest. You know, in in a cinema, it's kind of a longer experience, but in a TV, people are like, no, we want our entertainment now, and I, I guess that's translated into uh, into his film writing and, and directing, where it's just, yeah. you know, as you say, relentless. I would say, yeah. though, that uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and probably Blazing Saddles is a little bit of the slower paced, in that it's not quite <laughs> as relentless as, as some of the others. I think Spaceballs has a lot more visual gags because of the setting that it's parodying. And mm. um, uh, was it High Anxiety? Is that what it was? Uh, that was the, the, riff, yeah. Yeah, that one as well, where there's a lot more sort of just plain visual gags that has that relentless joke, 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 joke. But I guess in his mind, in a weird way, mm -hmm. that's one way to make a, a comedy film very successful is just if you're relentless with the jokes, you're bound to get yeah. most of the people laughing at, you know, at different beats of the film. So at least everyone's having a good time. Yeah, it's yeah, a game. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. Even just mentioning yeah. the, the the films that we've mentioned here, that thinking about it, the the ones which are a little less relentless mm. uh, tend to have a bit more of a narrative or structure to hang on. 
True. Whereas mm. High Anxiety, which is much more just a oddball comedy character piece, um, is it, you know that there, there's definitely like that sort of and Robin Hood Men in Tights as well. It's a pretty basic concept, so there's a lot more in Star Wars. Uh, Spaceballs, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, <laughs> Freudian slip. Yeah, I, I think of it, one of his last films, if not his last film, uh, Life Stinks, which is, I really want to revisit. I think we'll, we'll have to do that one at some point because I'm curious about the, it's how it deals with capitalism and money and such. It's very much more narrative film and isn't quite as relentless. It's a bit more almost an actual film as opposed to a series of just gags. So I was going to mention his film Silent Movie. Which um, it, I've not seen Silent Movie. I really no, need to get I don't on know. that. It's very, it's it's very. Uh, I don't want to say adorable, but it's just <laughs> it it really shows Mel Brooks's kind of just dorky side. He's in, pretty adorable. Of, he he just he he <laughs> his love of silent cinema and silent comedy just really shines in that. Um, I won't say the film's a masterpiece, but it's really charming. Hmm, yeah. Okay. okay. That's definitely on the, the list. Yeah, I, I think he he's was the only good celebrity ISO video, the one that he did with his son, and he's super adorable in that. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't come across that. Um, but, yeah, I think also that, that it's interesting. I wasn't surprised when I discovered that Max Books was his son and wrote the zombie survival guide and World War Z because that it's the same you can see that same way of perceiving the world and thinking about culture and history uh but in his son is directed at horror rather than at comedy but essentially they do the same things with the topics they take something that's established and recognized and they completely dismantle it and rebuild it into something else before your eyes and that's a it's a real gift that they both have well, I mean, Mel Brooks, um, his production company, Brooks Films, produced The Elephant Man and mm. the, the Fly. Yep. So yeah. he's always yeah, he's... kind of had that side to him. He's he he's one of the bravest producers <laughs> in American history, I think. He, he looked at Eraserhead and said, we need to hire that yeah. guy to do Elephant Man. Otherwise, yeah. David, if it wasn't for Mel Brooks, David Lynch might have just been another weirdo, a forgotten, one-time art weird film wonder, which there are many of in America. Yeah, that's a great connection, isn't it? Very bold. Yeah, wow. And also Cronenberg, though he'd done relatively big films, The Fly was a the film that really escalated him into a more Very mainstream much. awareness. Mm-hmm. This is a more simple film than his previous ones in some regards, but it's also... <laughs> I, 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 my dad accidentally hired that when I was seven and we watched it on video and we were both equally traumatised by it. <laughs> it seems to be a recurring trope in your life, Ben. It is. <laughs> Accidental <laughs> video hires. Yeah, when you are seven years old. It's yeah. a very good reason that the uh, Australian uh, film industry was forced to change its classification system to being <laughs> something that you could actually see as opposed to a tiny little faded R diamond on the side that, you know, your father who was steadily losing his eyesight didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ben, would you like to talk about your film? Yeah, well, I kind of... Uh struggled with the prompt a little bit as well because I wasn't sure whether you know um as Steph did to choose something that was like the first film that you remember seeing or whether it was you know the first film that kind of propelled me into being into films but uh, I think I'll go with the former 
uh, and partly for the reason that it's a film that's cropped up over time for me as well, and that film is Singing in the Rain. Oh. And so I, I probably saw that film, yeah, probably when I was about seven, and it's interesting because it ignited a love probably not for, for cinema but for tap dancing. I, oh, please I, keep talking. I'm loving this. Keep going. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if it was because I started tap dancing that I watched that film or whether that film made me want to start tap dancing. But one and the other were very closely tied in the chronology of my childhood. And yeah, it's interesting to me because when I was watching it for the first time, all I could see really was the entertainment factor. I could see the the bright colors. I could see the the funny faces and the the gags and the you know the energy of it. And it was only much later that I started to get some of the more contextual enjoyment from it and the aspects of film history and you know the transitioning b- between sound and talking cinema and that really fueled an extra layer of enjoyment for me. And then ad- adding to that having the contexts of the actual craft of the, the cinema making and the ways in which it tied in with other films around about that time and having films like An American in Paris paired with it and even kind of going back to one of my favorite films, The Red Shoes, and how that paved the way for something like Singing in the Rain to emerge. And Singing in the Rain has become this almost linchpin that has connected so many of my interests into one film, but then me watching it seven years old, having no idea about any of that and just finding it cool that Gene Kelly could dance like that and Donald O'Connor could fall down like that and Demi Reynolds <laughs> could sing like that. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my pick. That's a really wonderful choice. I feel like Singing in the Rain is one of those films which, no offence to anybody who doesn't like it, but if somebody doesn't <laughs> like that film, you do have to be like, are you okay? There's such a great comedy story that runs through that, and I think that was the thing that most surprised me about that film, because again, I, I came at it backwards. I think the first time I saw Singing in the Rain, I would have been well into my teens um, when I saw it for the first time. So I knew about it in reference, of course, I'd heard the song and I was familiar with that the actual dance sequence of being in the rain and singing, but I didn't know the rest of it. And it wasn't until my sister was watching it because she, she's really into old Hollywood. So she was at the time, I think she was going through a bit of a Marilyn Monroe kick actually and going through all of her um, catalog and singing the rain was one of them. And so I kind of half watched and, and half didn't while I was doing other things. And yeah, the think I think the bit that always made me laugh or really like clicked onto it and realized that oh this is actually a bit of a comedy story is the whole sequence with the microphones and the overacting oh, yeah. where she can't remember where it is and they have to keep moving it around and just you know <laughs> just fantastic little bit of you know physical comedy but also very in- sweet and engaging and such a, a fun little story that is told really nicely with lots of those beautiful vignettes of the musical sequences thrown in, like the, the tongue twisters and mm-hmm. the uh, the make them laugh sequence, of course, is, is oh. absolutely insane. Such a, such a pure expression of joy. That yeah. Film. It's just, you go to films, or at least I do, to have a particular, obviously there's, there's thoughts and, and ideas, but for me, one of the primary reasons that I seek out cinema is to be attuned to a particular feeling or a sensation, and to the, the way that they've just managed to get joy and inject that into that film, and that film be- 
becomes just joy. That, that's mm. what that film is. It's quite interesting that both the films that you've picked are films that open themselves up in different ways as you grew older. Mm. Uh, yeah, same here with Seeing the Rain. had seen it a lot as a kid. It was always on midday movie on the weekends or then coming back to it, having studied cinema and cinema history and going, oh, there's a whole side narrative running through this film. And even, mm. you know, thinking back on it now, I don't remember any of the character arcs <laughs> other than the ones that relate to media and media history. They're the character <laughs> arcs that I remember and stick with me of that because it does exquisitely illustrate how technology can shape how films are created or the kind of films oh, that are yeah. made at different times in history. It's a very, very good illustration of that changeover of the emerging technologies as well. There is a little bit of debate over how much sound really did destroy a lot of careers. There certainly were actors who weren't capable of being of voice actors, of being able to speak well, that they were much more physical performers, and some of them didn't transition well into the changeover, and some of them transitioned brilliantly. Mm. Even if it's fictionalising that and amplifying it to ridiculous extents, it, it illustrates that really wonderfully. And actually, even just talking about it, I remember the class we actually met in, that we were mm. all taking, was media history <laughs> that's right that's right Looking back at like development of vinyl and different recording types and how that yeah. was marketed and created and shaped the kind of uh, media that was being produced over the last 100 200 300 years 500 years i think we started with gutenberg press if i remember correctly we may have yeah probably always starts with the gutenberg press i'm sorry <laughs> we'll do an episode the gutenberg press and chat <laughs> we should have done that for episode one yeah <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure there was one section of a week devoted to the use of phonographs in seances or electric... Was it? No, it wasn't phonographs. Oh. It was like electric yeah. uh, cable yeah. as used in seances. The last Sounds thing that I wanted, right. wanted to mention about Singing in the Rain just before we proceed to Ben is the fact that I didn't know was that it's essentially a jukebox musical. I had no idea that all of the songs featured in Singing in the Rain were written possibly decades prior and they just picked and matched and really? set it to... Yeah, absolutely. Even the song Singing in the Rain was, I think, from the 20s or 30s. I didn't know that either. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it fits so. with the tradition of, like, Greece, where it's actually... Oh, that's a stupid thought. Let me rephrase <laughs> that. That makes Start me think again. of Greece. Mm. Which, when I was younger, I always thought that Greece was a lot older than it actually is because of America's weird late 70s, early 80s obsession with the with 50s. With the 50s, you know, yeah. So Which fits day. in with our really contemporary obsession with the 80s. Yeah, well. Whatever generation was coming up and through and recreating there. Like, I, I do like the, the theory that we're in an apocalyptic world because we all grew up watching a post-apocalyptic films and have weirdly managed to turn our obsession into reality. Manifestation. <laughs> Does that mean in like 10 or 20 years we're going to get the Terminator? Or That's why people started developing AI. That's inevitable, isn't it? Well. We came back from the future, so it's going to happen. Yeah, time time travel. Yeah. yeah time travel, timey It's based on a true story. You didn't, you didn't know it's based on a true story, Steph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people yeah, from the remember. year 20, 2049 came back into the year 1985 to create Terminator. No, no. 
Volchek, no, 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 you say they went back to 1985 to get inspiration for their movies, to bring back, (laughs) (laughs) to get the true authentic experience. Hey, I forgot about this. Remember this? And they're pointing to, you know, VHS or whatever. (laughs) The true story, um, was it Star Trek Four: Voyage Through Time, about how they had to come back to save the whales because they were all extinct? That's the same thing, that they had to come back to get culture because culture is extinct in the future. Yeah. Yeah. They hit the end of history and were like, shit. Back up, back up, back up. Uh, Bucks, would you like to put forth your first film for the evening? Uh, I shall. And I, too, flip-flopped all over the place on what I was going to. (laughs) And I actually didn't mean to do this, I swear. I have a problem, okay? Uh, Both of my films involve cannibalism. (laughs) Well, but that is representative of a lot of your interests, so that is fine. Continue. Yeah, I, I, I seriously did not mean to do it because I literally just a minute ago was, I know which film I'll talk about of the other one. The other one I said from the get-go, I knew. Wait, perhaps I... we should do a quick disclaimer to say that you're not actually a cannibal, but in the context of <laughs> film and film theory, cannibalism is a recurring theme and point of interest for you. Please continue. <laughs> that's that's one of my bad tattoo ideas, is not actually a cannibal tattooed on me. Oh, on, um, on your forehead or, you know? Yeah. Well, I did. What's that joke? This this tattoo answers a lot of questions that can be summed up in my tattoo. What's that? What's that? Uh, Anyway, what you're talking about, Ben? No, I don't. One of my tattoo ideas is the the image from I think it's the first episode of Bob's Burgers. If I think I think it's the first episode where they're accused of having human meat in the burgers and they have a sign out the front that says "Warning: May contain human meat" or something. Ravenous is the, possibly the greatest film ever made, definitely right <laughs> up there uh, as just an incredible work that every time I come back to it, even decades later and seen it numerous times, I still keep picking up new little details and ways of thinking about it. It's funny that the three of us picked Comedies Foundation oh, oh. because Ravenous is 100% a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. I laugh my ass off so much. I laugh more with every time it's I think all three of our origin films are American. Mm-hmm. Well, A Ravenous was directed by an by an English person. So, well, this is part of why I wanted to talk about it was that I did want to try and you know not just have American, not just have male directors, but mm-hmm. growing up in a country town with just TV and the video store, there wasn't a lot of variety. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the biggest variety was discovering how many films I loved as a kid were actually Italian, and I had no idea because they were really good at dubbing. Really uh, good in inverted I was comments. going to say, really good. Oh, yeah, the dubbing episode is going to be fun. <laughs> and we'll revisit Singing in the Rain when we get to the dubbing episode. <laughs> <laughs> Ravenous. I was uh, a bit older than your two picks. I was, what was it, 99, so I was 16 years old. It was election day here in Australia, a very, very depressing day. My mum worked as a counter and for doing the counting the the, uh, votes, and so she had just given me money to go to the video store and gone to work for all day. When it got ravenous, it just come out on video, and I watched it and loved it. The next morning, I made mum watch it with me. So I think it's the <laughs> first and one of the very few films that I watched twice in 24 hours. <laughs> Another one being Dark City, which I saw three times on opening weekend. <laughs> yeah, love Dark City. That was Dark City was almost going to be a peak, so I could talk about the imagined fake Australia that we created. That's a whole other topic when you get to doing national cinema. Yep. 
Ravenous, directed by Antonia Bird, woman director from the UK, who unfortunately passed away very young a couple of years ago. Ravenous is set at the frontier in America in the 19th century. It's all manifest destiny and, you know, great American idealism and filled with cannibals. Mm-hmm. It's connected to the Native American myth of the Wendigo. What it does is quite tremendous. Watching it now, it feels a little bit more normal. At the time, there really wasn't many films like it. It was smart, funny and gross, joyous, kind of mean, career best performances possibly from Robert Carlyle and Guy Pearce. Um, Yeah, so many names are in this one. I was just looking at on the interwebs, there's so many names of people that you'll just know and recognize from so many things interestingly all films we've mentioned music plays quite a significant part the music in ravenous is part of what elevates it i think michael Kamen and damon Albarn. michael nyman i always get michael Kamen and michael nyman mixed up I, i've got a peter greenaway dvd set sitting right in front of me so i'm like michael nyman yes we're gonna get lots of names wrong we we apologize in advance for any names or anybody we accidentally give credit to yeah, I, I, I don't want to be tight doing that. Well, actually, Guy, but... Actually, Michael <clears throat> Kane composed this music. Yeah. Um, in uh, Singing in the Rain, just for anybody who's writing that email. Oh, God. Yeah, Damon Elban from Blur and Gorillaz. He it, was also in an, another film that Antonio Bird directed, Face, uh, which also starred Robert Carlyle, but Damon Elban acted in that one. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Carlyle. I really need to see more of her films, but they're quite hard to track down these days. Yeah, Face, Face is one of the more accessible films. I watched it, I think, late last year, and it's very, very good. Yeah, well, she uh, worked Robert Carlyle on Priest as well. It was a very controversial film in the 90s, dealing with Catholic priests being no good. Gasp. <laughs> Actually, she was not the original director. They had done about a week of shooting for Ravenous. The director wasn't working out. He got fired. Carlisle had said, hey, Antonio Bird's good, why don't you get her in? So it was almost a film that shouldn't have existed and shouldn't have worked, but all of these incredible chaotic energies came together to make something that has absolutely stood the test of time and really eviscerates a lot of uh, American ideology and does it with glee beautifully beautifully shot that score is tremendous i was not a big blur fan when i was a kid and i'm still i like blur but i'm not addicted to them but i i love gorillas gorillas make sense if you've heard the ravenous soundtrack you can hear the early experimentation with blending cinematic musical styles with weird pop rock narrative you know, music and narrative that david Elvan would definitely bring together with the, the rest of the group in gorillas yeah i it's just I, it's such it's such a favourite film of mine. I just adore it. One of these days, I'm actually going to watch it a couple of times in a day and then sit down and write something about it. But I just think it's 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 everything I love in cinema. I'm just going to say that I love it again and move on. Steph. <laughs> oh, back to me. Okay. Um. Well, for my second film, I went in a bit of a well different direction. This will come no surprise to Bucks, but I picked Baby Driver as my my second film. Baby Driver was uh, Edgar Wright twenty. 17 release which is a i guess it's a mixture of a it's not really a heist film it's a getaway film about a very good driver and apparently named baby who got tangled up with oh what's his name k-pax dude um kevin spacey yes um who plays (laughs) 
the late That's, Kevin Spacey. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, the, 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 everybody, of course, will remember the um, masterpiece K-Pax. Um, Look, it's just my the... point of reference for him because as soon as I say it, everyone knows exactly who I'm talking about. So it works. This is this is how my brain works. I don't remember the names very well. I remember the films. So Funny because that was my dad's favorite <laughs> Kevin Spacey film. Was he it really? Loved that. I'm not even sure I've seen it, actually, to be honest. It was just the big thing when I was becoming more aware of films and watching a lot more films and sort of starting to branch out a bit more. It was just the movie that was everywhere at that time. Anyway, Baby Driver. That weird, shallow, dried-out period in the early 2000s where American cinema just fell on its face over and over again. Took a nosedive, yeah. Yeah. So this movie is very important to me for a couple of reasons. I went to go and see it on Bucks' recommendation because he basically came home and I was with the guy I was dating at the time, who's now my husband, sitting on the couch and Bucks just came into the room because, um, sorry for context, Bucks and I used to live together. We lived together for five or six or seven years or so. Uh, anyway, he came in and he said, I've just seen Baby Driver. You have to go and see it. Go and do it now. Do it now. Do it now. So pretty much we we did. Um, I think it was the next day we went to go and see it. It's It resonated with me so much. There were so many elements, particularly in the first half, that were like examples of me and my interests, the cars and the, or the skill with driving, the walking and singing that the main character kind of does in the beginning when everything's going well. The music, I mean, it even had, it's one of the handful of films that I've seen that has Hocus Pocus by Focus featuring in the middle of it, and it is done so fucking well. Uh, And even had sign language, which was a big interest of mine as well. And I just remember coming out of that film with this guy who I literally had only just met at the time. I had shown him one other film. I just remember walking out of that movie and kind of turning to him and saying, I feel so exposed right now because I feel like I've shown you somehow a bit of me and who I am uh, to someone that I've literally only just met. Luckily, it worked out. He liked the film, which was great. Um, probably not as much as I did, but that that's okay. And I, I actually rewatched it in preparation for talking about it just to make sure that it was still as, as good as I remember it being. And it, it definitely still still worked. I personally don't enjoy the sort of second sort of half as much, but the resolution for me kind of makes up for it as well. So totally on board. You did leave out the other sentence that I said when I told you that you had to go and see it. What was that? That I hated it. Uh, well, <laughs> well, but I, I could, I could still recognize that this film was for you. Yeah, it was for me, <laughs> and so I don't give a shit that you didn't like it. So that's that's really interesting because that obviously touches on a, a huge topic in well any culture I suppose which is how do you well subjectivity uh, yes let's just put it that way you know I personally I didn't I didn't hate the film I didn't love the film I thought it was pretty good but you know leaving aside the the other issue of my own personal quirk of if everyone loves a film I. It immediately makes me like the film less. Leaving that to one side, I find it just fascinating. And I I know it's such an obvious observation that some people will like a film and other people won't. But it just, the psychology of that and the huge amount of personal histories and contexts that come through in shaping what you do and do not respond to, even coming down to like, did you get enough sleep that day? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it's just fascinating to me it um, is and i think and... expectations i think i'd only seen one trailer of baby Gerard. i was like that looks really good but i wasn't like oh, i have to see it that's why when he came oh. home he was like you gotta just you gotta go you gotta go right now just go just go because he knew he knew and i will say in my defense i don't think it's the best movie ever or anything like that i don't put it on any kind of like my top all favorites list or anything like that but at the time like i said it just spoke to me in a way that no other film really has that's why i was so keen to rewatch it just to make sure that it did still have that kind of feel and it did it's not as relevant to me perhaps now as it was three years ago but it's still like you like you were saying about singing in the rain it had a feeling and it made me happy and it made me very yeah. happy so yeah yeah the race is another issue of uh well kevin spacey's in it yeah i don't know if i want to watch that anymore well he plays a piece of shit if that helps <laughs> i don't know plays <laughs> I mean, well, fine. Just um, that divide of like, what do you, it's such a, uh, a divisive topic for understandable reasons. And I don't know how to, how to respond to it in a lot of instances. And it's like, what do you, to, to what extent can you analyze something in it as a, as a, you know, an artifact versus yeah. achieve enjoyment from it. And, you know, I guess this extends to music as well and books and art and, and everything, but it's like, where, where do you draw the line? Do you do it as a case by case basis? Do you leave out certain things and who, I don't know. It's a, such a loaded issue. It Look is. out for it in episode 5048. <laughs> it is. I've actually had that discussion in terms of music most recently in regards to Spotify, not listing any lost profits music as a result of their frontman being in a lot of trouble with, I think child molestation. He's in jail at the moment. Yeah. And so they've just basically wiped him off of Spotify. And yet the questionable icon, I guess that is Michael Jackson still mm. available. Just saying. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Obviously that could come down to, as you said, Lost Prophets guy is in prison versus the person who was never found legally guilty. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a very I, dodgy it's... line to draw. No, I'm, I'm not drawing that line. I'm just saying I think that's what, from their position, I think if Michael Jackson had been found guilty, then maybe they might be a bit more reticent in presenting him. It's, it all comes down to individual choice of whether you can look past... Oh, I don't even say what it is. Like, it's past, a cognitive it, dissonance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It is. You know, if you know something about someone and you can continue to enjoy their output, where does that leave you? And it's not... Again, it's not like a thing of like, oh, you're, you're bad for doing this or you shouldn't do this. It's just like, can you personally live with that? Yeah. Choice. When it, for me, it comes down to: Do I need this art? Right. Does the world right. Need? And I think if it's if it is like a truly valuable piece of culture, then you do have to accept that there are shit people in the world creating good stuff. Mm. But they're just making nothing. If it's just empty, then fuck them. You don't need them. Which is well, I mean, why I it's... don't need Woody Allen. <laughs> oh my god. He was my <laughs> state heroes, and I have gladly just put him to one side because there's, you know, as you said, there's. There are millions of people producing art in the world. There is so much that you can just discard and replace with other stuff, let alone the fact that a lot of this, what is important and what is great is collectively socially judged. And it's like, if we just stop talking about it and replace it with other stuff, that will change what becomes socially important and great. 
Mm. Yeah, I find it very easy to let go of a lot of those 70s American filmmakers because they were just ripping off European filmmakers to create their stuff anyway. And then you get someone like Polanski, who was a European filmmaker, is a European filmmaker again, uh, because he's fled there. Uh, And again, it's like, you know, okay, he's made some great films, but I have absolutely gladly just discarded him and the regard for him, because why why do it? Why do you need it? You know? Interesting points. That's kind of what we're struggling with, like you said, is the dissonance between the art and real life and where they merge and how they impact on each other. It's basically what we're talking about just now. Yeah, exactly. So, Ben, chocks, what have you uh, (laughs) got? Well, um, this one was a hard one because, again, I I wasn't sure whether, whether to choose something that has really impacted me recently or something that has really shifted my perspective on what to look for in cinema. One of the, one of the things I was thinking of, of talking about was um, the short films of Stan Brackage, because um, that really opened my mind to a lot of stuff, you know, seeing, seeing the Garden of Unearthly Delights and the Dante Quartet being projected on actual film just like totally blew my mind. But I think what I'm going to settle for on oh, Rat Catcher was another one I was going to potentially mention, because that really has it's been, been, latched don't, onto me. Don't Ari us. One film, okay. come on. <laughs> One film that I, I, I'm going to mention is The Beaches of Agnes, which is documentary, an autobiographical documentary by Agnes Varda, a French filmmaker who sadly passed away, I think last year or the year before. I don't know what time is anymore. Um, <laughs> she was a director who whose work I really deeply connected with when I first saw it, which is actually, no, that's not true. When I first saw her work, it was in high school and no one in the class understood. And so we were all making fun of uh, her film, The Gleaners and I, then later kind of rediscovering it and finding out the real joy of the authenticity of it filled me with a deep respect for that film. But overall, I found that so much of her filmography dealt with humanity and being human and both the pleasures and the sadnesses that come with that and the beaches of Agnes why I've chosen this film is because it is a documentary and it is obviously autobiographical and I don't tend to watch a lot of those films because I've in my head set a really high bar for what a documentary needs to do to be engaging to me because it's so easy to just take an interesting topic and present it and be like, oh, wow, this is a documentary that is good just by virtue of it having a, an interesting topic. But that's a separate issue. Um, <laughs> the reason I love The Beaches of Agnes was the way that it managed to convey such an individual approach to cinema and art through that individual's own lens and combine a, a history and a, a an overview together with a I guess not not a, an explanation but a kind of summary perhaps a summation of the essence of what makes her tick and that kind of allowed me to connect with her work in a much deeper way and I think maybe the biggest reason that that film has ended up in in this section of the of my listing is the the kind of love that I have developed or that that film brought out of really digging deep into particular artists creative choices and creative drives shall we say and I've always been someone who will seek out a director's commentary or find out all the 
little bits and pieces that went into the making of a film, but I think that film really tied up all of that self-expression into one mind-blowingly beautiful piece of cinema. That's really cool. So did, did it prompt you to look into the rest of her filmography? Uh, yeah, in, in, in a way, yes. Um, this was being played during a retrospective of her of her films, and I, I did then go out and watch, I think, maybe one or two other of the films that were playing in that retrospective, and I'd always wanted to see more of her work, but I think this made me, I think, appreciate it on a sure. completely different level. That's yeah. really cool. Especially yeah, the way that she approached documentary filmmaking as well. Uh, because it was, again, it was a, such a, a personal lens that she would portray everything through. Uh, and, and it tied in with her fiction filmmaking in a really interesting way. So, yeah, that was really cool for me. Yeah, she's um, a, a filmmaker who I really haven't engaged with enough. I've got, I think, one of the Criterion Collections of mm. her American, American films. Um, we were talking about her recently, and I, I, I actually forgot I have seen two of her films, one short and one feature, because I saw her first film, completely escaped me the name of. La um, Yes, that's it. I saw her first film, The Restoration, at the film festival a number of years ago, and that was an exquisite film. Um, that was 53, if I remember correctly. But, uh, yeah, it, um, it's really fantastic that she has been and that she was alive to be rediscovered in her, her last days, rediscovered. Uh, I don't like that to sound right. but Appreciated. Yeah. Appreciated, Re- yeah. Because yeah. she had appreciation. She is absolutely yeah. one of the key, uh, uh, most important figures of the French New Wave. And yet... Well, she, pre- she predated the French New Wave. Exactly. She almost... Mm. Uh, was the French New Wave before people like Truffaut and Godard were finished writing their little bits of cr- criticism? You know, yeah, I, she, I, she I found it astonishing. That, yeah, she she was the French New Wave. I found it astonishing that she, because you know, the, the key so-called key figures of the French New Wave came from like a film criticism background. Agnès Varda had zero film background she was a photographer in her uh, origin and came to making filmmaking almost from a kind of documentary photography <laughs> almost kind of way and then injecting bits of poetry into that i believe um alain rene worked as either a film editor on her first feature film uh, again another key figure in the or maybe a key side figure in the in the french new wave movement but sort of blending in with some of these figures but coming from a completely different background and still yet making these incredible cinematic pieces that struck me a lot and i was really impressed by the fact that she had zero cinema background i've recently been digging into chantal ackerman's filmography and they, they have quite a few commonalities in how they move backwards and forwards between documentary and fiction often within the same film uh and very that very very personal perspective the films don't exist without them they're yeah. not, not they're not anonymous filmmakers they are 100 percent present in their films sometimes you know would even she would be the focus of her own films and, i yeah. recently discovered the work of cecilia condit who i think is most famous for her short possibly in michigan yep. which <laughs> i think millions of people people have seen and then maybe tens of people have seen her other video uh, we, uh, I, I, I really need to go and dig into her other stuff, but I've seen it's all available for free online on her channel. I yeah, I know. I've, I've got I've, like, I've got about 
two dozen tabs open in the background on various computers <laughs> of yeah. short filmmakers whose stuff is all available online. I'm like, I mean, just I need I need to do just that. Have a short <laughs> day for you. Pretty mm-hmm. much. Again, it's I, just like interesting the way that her filmmaking also veered from, and she appeared in a lot of her own video. I I, I never know whether to call them short films or video art because even she kind of oscillates between them. But yes, how how distinctly personal they are. I, I spent a, a chunk of time in the first lockdown wave digging through specific directors of music videos, and I can't think of any of their names now because a lot of them were strange Russian names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Russia, Russian music videos are, like, better than anywhere else, hands down. They're wild. <laughs> But yeah, because the the fellow um, he did um, some stuff for the weekend, and he went on to do Hardcore Henry, the feature POV film. Oh and, my god, yeah, that thing. But uh, yeah, that's the same thing that on Letterbox there is quite a few music videos that have been listed because their directors are also filmmakers. Going and watching them, it's the same question: is like, is this a short film or is this? video art is there a difference Mm -hmm. you know so many of these really masterful short films these music videos and even possibly michigan is kind of a music video it it, it is a Mm. musical it is the best cannibal musical (laughs) (laughs) Uh, somehow we we came back to cannibalism keep going i didn't know it this time Uh, so ben what's your second pick (laughs) well i just wanted to say quickly because we we did uh, i used to run a film night called cinecult 303 that we ran out of back room of a bar here in melbourne and we ran for on and off for 10 years playing vhs and all sorts of random stuff that you couldn't find anyway and we did with my good friend liam he cut together a three-hour horror shorts epic that was a combination of random little horror shorts and omnibus pulling out some stories from omnibus horror films. It was a roller coaster ride. And we don't remember it's like, it's three hours long. I was like, what? Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, three hours? And we, the whole place was packed. It was wasn't really big, so it was, that was only about 40 people or so. I had just heard of possibly in Michigan I had read about it on Letterboxd I hadn't watched it I sent it to Liam and said I think this sounds like something that will work in that combo and I'm not going to watch it because I want the experience of watching it with an audience for the first time and he ended up finishing out the three hours with possibly in Michigan after this incredible roller coaster ride of strange horror stuff possibly in Michigan broke everyone like it <laughs> Not in a not in a horror nasty way, like it just broke their minds. What am I watching? What is happening now? I have already passed my limit of content exposure, whatever. And people would just look at each other, going, "What's happening? Is this? Is what have I fallen into? Some weird, bizarre parallel dimension?" And it was such a beautiful, one of my absolute all-time favorite memories. Was just feeling this whole audience loving possibly in Michigan, but also just, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what's happening. Well, again, you know, this is video art or cinema being created by someone whose background is in art. Mm. You know, it's mm. a, this is someone who has not approached cinema from a cinema point of view. And I think that's a really interesting avenue to explore in episode 6,549. <laughs> also think of like, um, the fellow who did Hunger and 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. 
Mm. Yeah, he came from a video art installation background. Mm. Um, Even which is very Peter Greenaway was a painter. It's a bit like when someone from a different country makes a film about somewhere they're looking, an outsider looking in. <clears throat> Wake and Fright. <laughs> Wake and Fright, absolutely. Um, there's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of really great films made by non-Australians who rip us apart better than we do. <laughs> <laughs> they're a weird mob. Yeah, there we yeah. yeah, we definitely did do a Powell and Persberger episode because that's just a fascinating history those two had and peeping Tom destroying his career and oh, ending up yeah. having to come to Australia and there's a, you know Wake and Fright connection there and that the the editor of Powell's uh, first Australian film Age of Consent would go on to edit Wake and Fright. There's some really interesting anecdotes from that which just do a plug for another podcast that I appear on occasionally, The Projection Booth. They did a fantastic episode on Wake and Fright and interviewed Jack Thompson and, and the, the editor and um, and the director, um, David Kochev. And it's, it's there's a lot of really, Ted really Kocher. fantastic... Ted Kochev. Ted, so, I was about to say... other Canadian director, David Cronenberg. <laughs> Pause. I'm mashing them off my head. I did. I did. We both, Steph and I, got to meet. You did. You meet Ted Kocher when he was out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I think I, I had to get Steph him. I had to get him an Uber or something like that back to his, <laughs> uh, his hotel room. He was a sweetheart though, really sweetheart. I'm pretty sure Baltic, you were at that Q and A. I, I no, think I remember you being no, there. No, I wasn't. Really? I, I wasn't. Yeah, I was very sad not to be, but I wasn't there. Oh, yeah, I, I, I missed all of, I missed all of his Q and A's, but I did manage to like splutter my way through a very embarrassed uh, request to, for him to sign my first blood VHS. Is that the one that actually had the little blood packet in the VHS cover? No, those no. are just something uh, else. Oh, is that the craze? The craze has a blood packet cover. Yeah, my my grandma went to school with the craze little sister. Anyway, anyway, uh, <laughs> let's get on to your your last the last film that we're going to cover officially. Sure thing. <laughs> um, I I I picked this film and I went back and rewatched it and I had so much fun with it again and the second time seeing it and I then was like I shouldn't talk about this film I don't know how to talk about this film <laughs> but then there were connections to it I was like no I could do this I could do this so the yeah the, the 2016 film We Are the Flesh it's a Mexican French co-production it really didn't get any attention it, it hasn't been released in Australia at all only one film festival in Australia played at the Sydney Underground Film Festival which I found very surprising and is is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm become very dismissive of a lot of festivals being the way they're being run these days because films like this have been ignored yeah so the the it's a very strange film um i they, it's it's a film that 100 percent requires content warning but it's mm-hmm. easier to do the content warning by saying what's not in it <laughs> uh it doesn't have scat it doesn't have bestiality it doesn't have pedophilia uh, otherwise, there's pretty. I feel much like this is a very <laughs> strange way of going around and putting bumper lanes up over when you're like playing bowling. It's like it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that, but everything else down the middle, yeah, you got it. It's it is like it is a very very odd little film that it's it's like I'm looking at here on Letterbox that it's only got a 2.8 overall rating and the spread is leaning much more to the lower end. And most of the people, well, how I many know, people have seen it? 3.4 thousand approximately oh, wow. okay. on Letterboxd. But the thing is, like, there's there's one there's a great quote here from a, a, a critic that I follow on um, Letterbox. 
Nathanson. Uh, although we are the flesh operates on multiple allegorical fronts, like if Hansel and Gretel ended up joining the witch to found an anti-Christian early church, which is still really Christianity because maybe Gnosticism, it is entirely possible just to lay back and dig its cheerful orientation. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to kind of sum it up. It's seemingly some sort of uh, dystopian world with these uh, Noe Hernandez is this man who is inhabiting seemingly abandoned building and all he does is drop what appears to be LSD regularly and collect uh, makes alcohol and gas uh, from bread cooking it up and receives eggs in egg cartons and builds a world out of egg cartons and wood and gaffer tape and these brother and sister wander into his home and join with him in a revelry of uh, uh, bacchanalian pleasures and world building and like it says in that thing it's like it's not it's anti-christian but it's really christian because it's like can't escape that in a mexican catholic world and it is very reminiscent of a lot of the, the sort of 60s and 70s films that were trying very hard to be transgressive and still end up falling on the same kind of what is actually rather mainstream tropes of, um, you know, um, social structures systems. This one is actually anarchic. It really is non-judgmental. It just embraces this absurd strangeness of how we function, builds systems, relate to each other and pushes against all boundaries. And for a film that on the surface should probably be really nasty, it's not. And this is what's surprising most. And I I'm, saw it with a group of friends for the first time and was actually quite surprised that we came out of it all loving it because it was people, the group of people was quite diverse in their tastes. And they all had the same response that they just loved it. Like they just felt like a weird kind of joy in this film. And it's not that it's, it, it's, you know, it's not pro cannibalism or anything like that as such, uh, no more than Catholicism is in its uh, eating of the Eucharist and such. Uh, mm-hmm. It has those kind of connections, but it just like, it just, it's like, yeah, yeah. Just like go with it. Just roll, just live life engage be happy enjoy us and it just does it within uh mexican culture like it is i think a, a lot of the negativity to it like it is quite a free form film it doesn't have there's definitely a plot there and arcs and such but it's one of those films that doesn't necessarily tell you how to read them you need to come to it with knowledge you need to have some awareness of theological history and theology philosophy sociology you need to know a bit about mexico's history you know understanding of catholicism uh, you even need to be aware of things like you know mexico they have newspapers that put bloody dead shot up bodies on the cover and they're literally just gore magazines and they're normal and sold everywhere it's one of the most popular newspapers in mexico that they, they live with this kind of death uh, in their culture, um, well, yeah, it's, they are the dead and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, death culture is death has a very different representation and a very different symbolic meaning to 
particularly the the Mexicans and, and Southern American communities, um, they very much have the point of view that it's death is not the end, it's just sort of the next chapter, and the dead is very much still present in the living. Exactly. I think part of the joy it is that it boils away a lot of the hypocrisy that these films can sometimes crash into. And there's one scene where a, a, they a kill somebody, and he's a, he's a soldier, and they say to him, you know, why are you afraid of death? You know, in, in choosing to be a soldier, you acknowledge that you will die, and that they're not killing him to not killing him from anger or for vengeance or for any reason that is false, that they are killing him only to have his flesh and like a transaction. And as the the way the film kind of presents these kind of elements, which is they're not things that are necessarily good and they're not ideals, but it's honesty in stating this is why we're actually doing this or this is how we're doing that or it feels very cathartic. I know personally, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I came to it. It does deal with a lot of these really big topics that it does have a lot of cogs whirring in it, of connecting different things, that it is very transgressive and intense and that it is quite cathartic in its chaos. And I know that part of my going to university was in a way like asking myself, why do I like the films that I do? Because mm. I have always had very dark, strange tastes in cinema. And ultimately, the conclusion I came to was that growing up in a very boring, crap little country town where nothing ever changed and nothing was ever different, that horror films were changed, horror films were different, horror films were this chaos breaking apart, this solid, immovable, tedious reality. Mm. And this film does that better than almost any other film I can think of. And I just love the kind of traditions that it grows out of, like that, those Mexican aspects. But also, like one of the films I think that it owes is the films of Coffin Joe, who is a Brazilian filmmaker in the 60s, who was a megastar who made these completely deranged, nihilistic, anti-God horror films where he was... Coffin Joe was the actor, director, writer. He did everything. They're really fun, nuts films, but they're still, like, they're quite, yeah, they're very nihilistic. They're quite misogynistic. They, these are the kind of things that I was talking about where the, the, these transgressive films fall into those traps really easily. And this feels like the kind of film where you can tell that these filmmakers would have seen the works of Coffin Joe but have managed to get away from those and refute those kind of nihilism being like, no, this has meaning. There is purpose. There are reasons. And this, this nihilism and hypocrisy is a toxin. And the film is so good at just stripping that out. And it's really beautiful. The performances are really fun. Yeah, Noe Hernandez is fantastic. He, he was, as I said, in uh, We Are What We Are and like, a couple of films that people know, Miss Bala. And he, he is such a joy as this kind of sort of almost like a deity Christian kind, a Christ figure, but the anarchic, weird, demented version of that. So, yeah, so that's why We Are The Flares. I think it's it's really uh, underrated and not talked about enough, and I would highly recommend it if you can cope with lots of really fucking nuts stuff. <laughs> I'm so... going to watch it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's such a shame that the people you went to see it with aren't... Uh... Or maybe they are a part of the half a dozen or so reviews for it. <laughs> maybe they're the ones uh, responsible for the slightly higher rating. I don't know. 
it, it has it, 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 a couple of people who I generally trust reviews of on Letterboxd. They all rate it very highly, so that probably says something about... Uh... Well, maybe that's a topic for another time about finding a film critic that you agree with and how unreliable or how problematic yeah. it is to really identify... Because you're, you're talking about a lot of... And just listening to you talk just then, uh, Box was very much talking about a lot of your passions. And I know, because I know you so well, that you're saying a lot of your buzzwords. So I know that mm. this is obviously representative of... Or, you know, very... Um, hits a lot of points for you. And, you know, how difficult it is... You, you said you had your moments of self-reflection to kind of identify why you're gravitating towards the kinds of films that you do... And honestly, I think it's such a shame that more people don't take that time to kind of take a step back and identify what it is that they enjoy. Because I've had conversations with people who are like, oh, I love, yeah, yeah, I love films. I love going to see films, but I can't stand the people who sit there and then pull it apart. Whereas I think that's the best bit about going to a film, particularly mm. seeing one with somebody else is spending that next 10 20 minutes however long it is with that person and kind of going well what did you get out of it oh see i didn't interpret that it that way at all and and you know having an opportunity to identify what exactly it was that worked or didn't work or how it succeeded or how it thwarted your expectations and it's i'm not very eloquent with being able to identify why i respond to the films that i do but at least i try and i feel like it's such a missed opportunity that more people don't take that that opportunity that chance this is a you know a big problem that we're having i think is that as a species right now is that opinions are important we all have opinions but then quite often and are not reflected upon not acknowledged where they grew out from mm. and it really devalues the worth of that opinion mm. well hopefully what we're trying to achieve here which is trying to listen to each other's opinions and respect them without it turning into a fist fight of words and saying <laughs> not you're wrong hopefully we can try and be a bit more eloquent than that we're one of the reasons for doing a kind of chaotic mess of a podcast like this where we're talking more about histories and ideas and themes and such uh is to come get around that fact that we're not necessarily like talking about it doesn't matter whether we like the films or not it's about is there something interesting to talk about in mm. relation to the film there's criticism who's quite often fallen just to being opinions of whether someone likes it or not and honestly unless i know that person enough to value their opinion i don't really give a shit if they like yeah. it or not i want to know if there's something interesting about the film even on like a purely personal note, and I don't mean personal for myself, but like personal for any one given person, it's such a ripe opportunity to, you know, as you say, Steph, dissect your own tastes and mm. your own approaches to things and, and figuring out why you like something and why you don't, some, don't like something. And using that as almost an empowering tool to break through the kind of mainstream cinema paradigms or artistic paradigms that yeah. are thrust upon us by the various big industries and, and yeah, cutting through the white uh, noise 
Yeah, but it's all—it's almost like cu- cutting through the white noise that you don't realize is white noise yeah. until you step back and see it as white noise. Yeah. Uh, and and I know for myself, you know, I I have long since shied away from just watching a film because everyone's talking about it, or watching a film because it happens to be the big film of the moment. I tend to, you know, I I quite know what I'm interested in, what I am interested in exploring, what I like, what I don't like. And so I tend to follow the path of getting through stuff that I think will inspire me in some way. And, you know, sometimes obviously I'll I'll come across stuff that I completely don't get into, but at least I think for myself, I've come to that from a place of wanting to find out more Mm. rather than you know, necessarily just being like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to go see this film, whatever. I find it really <laughs> bizarre. And I guess that totally makes sense when people just see films as a, a way to pass time, you know, yeah. as opposed to an interest. And of course, so of course, that phenomenon is going to come out. But, you know, when people are like, oh, I'm going to go to the cinema. Uh, let's see what's on. Oh, that's on. OK, let's go. And then go off and then completely don't talk about the film and just go off and have dinner and go to bed, you know? Yeah. I, I, a big problem that I've had over the years uh, in divides between my, what I think is great and what other people think is terrible is uh, I don't need characters and I don't need narrative arcs. They can be great, but like if there's more going on in the film, if the film is running a commentary on something I'm interested in or examining, revealing something, that's possibly enough. It depends on the film, obviously, but there's so often people will just sh- shut down to a film because it doesn't have characters that they can identify with. And I'm like, mm. I don't need it's a to identify. That possibly, yeah. like, I, you know, I have a long history of having had social anxiety and is- dealing with people has often quite been very difficult for me. And I think that altered how I view films because I have this complicated relationship with human beings. Um, and so my films, like, I actually, you know, I, I, I very uh, negatively refer to some of these films as people movies because <laughs> <laughs> they're about people and I don't care. Well, like, yeah. I want to see a film that's just about two people going through a uh, marriage breakdown or getting through school. It's like, no, I need more than that. I need to, I need the social context. I need a philosophical context. I need lots of other things, a hell of a lot more than I need someone's story. But I think that the, the point of that is that you will bring your own context and you will attach that to whatever story or characters are being put onto the screen. And in some way that will resonate with you and you will create your own meaning from it. I think Absolutely. that's that's a very important part of cinema as well. And ultimately, that's that's what we're trying to achieve with this sort of taking bits of what we've all kind of said that's what we're trying to achieve with this little podcast in whatever form that it takes is that it's not necessarily about the three of us debating why x film is good bad or other or you know whether it has value or not it's more about us seeing some of these threads how they connect what they can mean uh hopefully it gets people thinking it hopefully will get people um you know, being a bit more proactive with their reflections on movies or films that they're watching or short films or documentaries, whatever format it is, um, that it's more about saying, oh, I really liked that. 
why did I like that? What was behind it? And maybe delving a little deeper into a conceptual theory and what other films can explore it. And hopefully you find other things that you enjoy as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I think a a failing of criticism these days is a lack of creativity and imagination. Mm. I think to be a really fantastic critic, you need to have creativity and imagination. You need to be able to tell a story and draw out like the the important aspects of that narrative that you're communicating. Mm. Uh, and I think that was again like what yeah the point of the podcast is to be to kind of try and ride that creative imaginative wave of making odd connections and talking about bits of history that people might not know about and you know putting two things side by side and going how do these alter each other um that's definitely one of the great joys of cinema you know doing a double feature where you watch two very different film and they kind of bounce off each other and create something you might not have seen or thought of strange links definitely yeah i know that's something that we've all kind of experienced and you know they come out when we talk like this and like we will continue to talk while we'll go on tangents and that's all okay because that's that's exactly (laughs) what happens um But, you know, you can watch three films in the space of a month and not realize that, oh, actually, it's not just that this one actor is in all three of them, because sometimes that happens, (laughs) but it's actually this concept underneath it that's just below the surface that just takes a little bit of effort to just peel away that top layer. And you can realize that this is hitting the same problem, but perhaps from a different perspective, or it's using the same bit of theory to evoke the same reaction in you and maybe you respond differently in those two films or three films, whatever it is. Yeah, and also, you know, talking about films in different contexts like that. Like, you know, the, the, the what's happening at the moment in the world, we don't want to talk about too much because mm. it's everywhere, but watching certain films in the context of what's happening has changed them. Uh, I know a lot of people online are like, I won't ever say that uh, a character's behaviour or decisions uh, were stupid in a horror film again because look (laughs) at the world right now. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I think that we'll we'll be talking about some films where we'll have to refer to contemporary contexts and how that shifted it. But it's also really fun to go back and try and pull out the context that the film was created in because that can reveal an entire different film and meaning that might have been lost to time absolutely and you know all the threads that have set precedents to draw a pathway to create what a film may or may not have presented itself as uh, when it did we will be attempting to do this weekly i'm pretty sure we're probably going to have a bit of a rotating roster sometimes and we definitely want to get guests in people with specialities and such so you can talk about their perspectives and interests Anything you want to say, Ben, Steph? No, not really. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. And I think I've written <laughs> down that? a couple of notes of some <laughs> of the topics that we've said is going to be in episode 4,392. So uh, I'll, we've got a lot of great content to, uh, to get us going onto whatever we come up with next. Excellent. So now we do have an email if you want to email us and tell us we're idiots. Uh, <laughs> don't. Uh, we already know that. Uh, what, what was our email? Our, our email is videovortexoz at gmail.com. That's videovortexoz as an A-U-S at gmail.com. Uh, we'll, put, we'll be posting links and, and things so you can find us there. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I will definitely shut up now. Uh, thanks, Steph. <laughs> thanks, Ed. Hope to hear from you hear from us soon, and uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit more 
focus. Thanks for coming in with us through to the video vortex. All right, and that's where we stop the recording. <laughs> and end. Yeah. the end of it. Oh god. I just had a big ball. Oh my god. And the wheels fell off immediately. Um, yes. <laughs> Ladies right. and gentlemen, it's Here Monday night. <laughs> what Monday what, night? What, what is days again? I don't, I'm not familiar I'm with that. I'm not sure anymore. Alright. Here we go. This is the one. <laughs>